I'm turning today to the first letter of Peter, chapter 3 and verse 8. First Peter, chapter 3, verse 8. Finally, be ye all of one mind, having compassion one of another. Love as brethren. Be pitiful, be courteous. And a great passage is before us about the attitude in life of Christian believers. And our title is The Call to Long-Suffering. But just by way of introduction, I'd like to uh, draw attention to a number of verses in this epistle that mention our call. Chapter 1 and verse 15. But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, of behavior, literally of toing and froing. As he which hath called you is holy, the call, the call here to holiness in every aspect of behavior and attitude. And then in chapter 2 and verse 9, we find this again. Ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, a special possession, that is, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. It is the call out of darkness into marvelous light which makes us priests to God to show forth his praises in our King James Version, his virtues, literally his excellences. That's our calling. Calling again occurs. And then in this same chapter 2 and verse uh, uh, 21, for even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. What glory is it when ye be buffeted for your faults? Ye shall take it patiently. But if when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. For even hereunto were ye called. The calling of God runs right through these verses. We find it also in the passage we're going to be looking at, chapter 3 and verse 9, not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrariwise blessing, knowing that ye are thereunto called, that ye should inherit a blessing. And you find it towards the end in chapter 5 and verse 10, once again, but the God of all grace who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Jesus Christ, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. So I want you to remember, if you can, that this calling of God runs right through the first letter of Peter. And you keep it in mind throughout these verses, and there's so much plainer to our understanding. So First Peter chapter 3, verse 8, Finally, be ye all of one mind, having compassion one of another. We are called to be a tender-hearted people. That's unquestionable in this verse. Now, there's a trend coming in 
into the Christian world, which seems to arise from some of the well-known internet preachers in the USA. There are vast numbers of nominal Christians in the USA. I trust many true Christians, but the USA is still in our late Victorian age in some limited respects. There are vast numbers of nominal Christians. And so internet preachers in the USA can command huge viewings and hearings and audiences on account of this. But there are some among them, and among those of, who are on the whole sounder, and we're thankful for the degree of truth that they do stand for and proclaim. But there are some of them who seem to be all taken up with this uh, novel idea of Christian manliness. And they proclaim it a great deal. Christian manliness, which seems to mean being authoritative and aggressive and dogmatic about everything you say and unyielding and so on. And this, apparently, is Christian manliness. And it's coming in. And it's a tragedy that it does. We'll find, even at the study before us, it's completely contrary to everything that we read in the Scriptures. We read Romans 12. That's a better definition of Christian manliness. There's much more gentleness and meekness and serving spirit in Romans 12, it's full of it. But Christian manliness, it seems to be more of a kind of, well, behaving like a parade ground sergeant major on a bad day. They shout a lot, many of them, shrill, screaming, yelling. It's all aggression and dogmatism. And this is their idea of manliness. We shall see it's contrary to what we're exhorted to be like in the scripture. It's contrary to Christ. It's contrary to the apostles. But it's the new fashion, and people are picking it up. And it makes you a parade ground pastor, parade ground preacher, a parade ground sergeant major husband, a parade ground sergeant major parent, a parade ground sergeant major elder. It's coming in, in all kinds of places. The strange thing is that these men who are so manly turn out to be very weak in the very areas where they should be manly. So for instance, the great invasion of the church by worldliness today turning services into pop concerts, bringing in all the trappings of worldly behavior, instrumentation, chord forms and music and so on, bringing all this into the church where they should stand firm, they yield. And they're as flaccid as jellyfish. And they give way to it all and adopt it all. That's the measure of how manly they are. Are they defending the great principles of Christian behavior and worship of the Lord and so on? 
the real, really important exhortations of the word? And the answer is, they're not. They're giving way and collapsing in the face of all this. Don't listen to them on this kind of theme. Look at the word before us here. First of all, then, in verse 8, the call to tenderheartedness. Be all of one mind. Well, that obviously doesn't mean the same tastes, the same favourite colour, the same favourite place, the same favourite this or that. It means all one in love for the Lord, in love for the salvation of souls, in love for the study of God's word and the study of the great features of Christ. It means all one in harmony and peace so far as we can, not only in the church, but to neighbours and colleagues and associates, all one in the quest for holiness and godliness of life, all one in reasonableness and moderation of lifestyle and, and tastes and indulgences, all one in these things. Finally, be ye all of one mind, harmonious in all the important matters, having compassion one of another. The word translated compassion there literally means fellow feeling, sympathy, people of sympathy, real understanding, love as brethren, love like brothers. We have some wonderful words in our church constitution, particularly in the Keach Covenant, about our duties one to another, how we have affection for each other and respect for each other, and we strive to protect each other's reputation, just like a close family would, to defend brothers and sisters, not gossiping about each other, not speaking wrongly either at people or about them behind their back, but defensive of each other. Love as brethren, that's the word, as a good brother or sister. Be pitiful, what a word that is. That's again a word which is about inner feeling. Be pitiful and feel it in action. Be pitiful, help people. Be courteous, our King James Version translate this word. And the Greek is a compound word which means uh, friendly in mind or friendly literally in feeling. Be courteous. Perhaps gentle would be a better word. And kindly. The modern translations tend to go for humble, which is a bit off the mark. It's only nearly there. Be humble, no. It's uh, more, uh, and courteous is, is better, but it's a little formal. But the true sense and the true meaning is feelingful towards one another. Be courteous. That's, that's the Christian standard. Oh, to cultivate that, 
to pray to be these things. That's real strength to exhibit these characteristics. That's strength, not aggression and being dogmatic. Then in verse 9, the tone changes slightly. Called to meekness and forbearance under provocation, not rendering evil for evil. And it's words that are in mind, but it also includes acts, no doubt. Not retaliating, not responding in kind when insulted or offended, never doing that, not rendering evil for evil or railing insult for railing, but the very opposite, contrarywise, blessing. Well, that's the Greek word from which our word eulogy comes almost directly. Blessing, speaking well of. So, when insulted, when offended, instead of responding in kind, strength in the Christian life is to speak kindly and well to people knowing and here's the great incentive and the calling word comes in knowing that ye are thereunto called that ye should inherit a blessing the word inherit it means you get it without effort from you you get it freely because it's your entitlement well, it isn't, of course, but it becomes your entitlement because Christ has purchased it for you and you're one of his children. So you are going to freely and graciously inherit something. What is it? It's an eternal blessing in glory. You are going to inherit so much. You have offended God grievously. And even as a Christian, you continue to do so day by day. Almost every moment of the day we'll do something which is offensive to him and yet we will freely inherit a blessing. Think of that, Peter seems to say. Bear that in mind. We're all so utterly unworthy and we're going to receive so much. Well then, doesn't that motivate you to stand up to some offensiveness directed toward you? Some insults, some jibe. Speak well to people, knowing that you're called to do this, that you should inherit a blessing. Now, you'll see after contrarywise blessing in verse 9 is a semicolon, because our translators have decided that the inheritance of the blessing applies to calling. It's not a direct reward for returning insult with kindness, but that the reward is brought in as a motivation. And they're probably right. Some translations go the other way. They say, but on, on the contrary, do the opposite, knowing that you're called to do this, and you shall inherit a blessing. But our translators put a semicolon there to indicate that the second part of the verse the two parts belong to each other. Not rendering evil for evil, returning insulting kind, or railing for railing, 
but the very opposite speaking well of. Semicolon, knowing that you're called to this, that you should inherit a blessing. And then verse 10 moves the subject on a little further. We're called to uplift peace at every possible opportunity with fellow Christians and even with non-Christians. For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil, and so on, all the way down to the end of verse 12, and that is a quotation from Psalm 34, all those three verses. But look at how, how it begins. It may surprise us. For he that will love life. And the idea is, we are supposed to love life. What? A Christian? Love life? It surprises us, because what comes to our minds with this idea is loving this world. No, no, no. We don't love this world and its system, ruled by Satan, full of sin and tokens of the fall. But we are supposed to love our time here and our life here, and there's a difference. And Psalm 34 says it, and it's quoted here by Peter, for he that will love life. You should love the privilege which you have of three score years and ten, or whatever it may be, here in this present life. And you should make the most of every moment of your life for the glory of God and to his praise and in his service. The Apostle Paul, when he felt he was approaching death and his martyrdom was looming and appeared to be so near to him, he said, for I'm in a fix betwixt two in my mind. I'm drawn two ways. Whether to be martyred and taken to be with the Lord, it's not my choice, of course. It's what God will bring about. Should I just look forward to that and rejoice in that and the glory of eternity? Or to remain here and to continue to minister and to be of help to you? I don't know. If I had a choice, he says, I don't know which I should choose. I am drawn to stay here and I am drawn to go into the future. And it's the same with us. Don't be all the future. That's great. Wait for Christ. Look for him. Look for the great and coming day. Live for that. But not at the expense of your sense of privilege and your sense of commission that God has posted you here for a time. And you want it to count, and you want to make the most of it, and you want to love your posting here, and to be used of him, and to have victories in his name and for his sake. For he that will love life, and that's what we're supposed to do, have this balance, and see good days, which probably means have peace. Peaceful days, he that will love life and see good days. 
let him and the advice comes to principally refrain your tongue from evil and so on. But let's explore just a little he that will love life. Have you thought about this? There are many things that you can only do for the Lord while you're here. You will not be able to do them in heaven. There's quite a number of things you can only do as a Christian on earth. And if God calls you home and you haven't done them, and you haven't done many of them or thought about that, well, will you have a fleeting moment of great sadness even as you go before you enter into happiness and bliss? A fleeting moment when you'll think, I'm going and I haven't done these things while on earth. I haven't expressed my gratitude on earth by accomplishing or applying myself to the range of things which I could only do for the Lord while here and I won't be able to do them in heaven. Well, what are these things that we can only do here? Think of these things when you look at this passage, verse 10, he that will love life and see good days. Well, for instance, in heaven you will not be able to experience triumphs of grace in the midst of adversity and temptation because there won't be any adversity and temptation. This is the only place, a fallen earth, the only time, the present that you can prove the Lord and triumph in adversity and while under temptation. So let's love life, dear friends, and pray for this, that we shall know triumphs of grace in our lives, in our witness. These are tremendous things. How can I ever repay him for suffering and dying for me? for bearing away my eternal punishment, for securing eternal glory for me. I can prove him in the middle of adversity. Oh, I must love life because it's the only time I can express my gratitude and thanks in that way while here on earth. It is only while here I can prove the power of prayer. It's only here I desperately need to pray for relief, for help, for souls, for people around me, for a change in circumstances, for various blessings, for light and understanding. I have no need to pray for those things, though in some form I will, in glory, but they come to me all the time, unrestricted, a never diminishing flow of glory and blessing. Only here do we have the opportunity to exercise faith 
in the eternal glory, faith will give way to sight. We won't need the kind of faith we have here, which is trust against all the odds, because we shall see and we shall feel the presence of God. Only here can we make the most of our foreign posting, our posting to live in this world and to soldier here and to serve him here. Only here can we defeat temptation minute by minute. Only here can we make sacrifices for the Lord of glory. Have you made a sacrifice for him this week? Foregone some pleasure, some relaxation to serve the Lord? Paid some price for your faith and for your stand and been willing to do it? Died to the world? Only here can you make sacrifices for him. When you're on your deathbed and you're approaching your end, you don't want sorrow. I never really sacrificed. I never took the opportunity to live life for the Lord as I may have done. It's only now that opportunity will go. Only here do you have the opportunity to obey the word, love not the world, because the world won't be in heaven. The world system that we know, suffused with sin, only here can you pass the tests of faith. There'll be a test of faith in some shape or form for all of us every day this week. Only here can you pass the tests of faith. Only here in this life can you press toward the mark because in heaven you've reached the mark. You've run the race You've received the crown, you've passed that finishing line, and you're into glory. All these things you can only do now. So that's what we have in mind when we read these words. For he that will love life and see good days. That's how we need to be exercising ourselves. But here's the direct advice, second part of verse 10. Let him refrain his tongue from evil. Choke back those words that are unworthy and wrong. And his lips that they speak no guile, no hidden evil, no gossip which is shrouded in flattery or kindness or uh, some thing that sweetens the words in some way, but it's still gossip underneath. And his lips that they speak no guile. Let him, verse 11, eschew evil, that is, um, avoid evil, refrain from it, and do good. The words are simple to read every day. We pray for the grace to avoid evil things. Never relax. Never take your hands off the steering wheel of life. 
Never think you can go through the afternoon not thinking about resisting temptation. We're resisting evil all the time, thoughts and acts, but do good. Formulate good things to do, kind things to do, helpful things to do and to say. Some people, they'll admit it to you. They never think of anything that they have to say. So they don't say anything useful. Friends, there are very few people who naturally can just speak out and almost without having to think about it, say gracious things. That's a very unusual gift. Most people have to formulate and think of things. Now, I'm going into work today. Uh, I'm going to have some moments of conversation with this one and with that one. Do I have the slightest idea what useful thing I could raise or topic I could embark on or opportunity I could take? Have I even thought about it? I'm going to see a friend. Uh, Have I the slightest idea what will take place when I do? What the line of our conversation might be? Have I got anything in my hand to take with me? And many people just don't think of this. And so everything is on autopilot. Take every conversation as it comes and they end up saying very little, which is profitable or useful or edifying. We all of us have to think and formulate and plan. So think of that when you read these words. Let him avoid evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it, we have. Well, Psalm 34 is translated pursue it. And really that would be better here. But seek peace and pursue it because peace is always running away. Always there are silly little irritations or grievances which we're likely to respond to. Seek peace, harmony, as much as you can. Seek it positively. Don't just expect it to happen. Seek it, promote it, and pursue it because it tries to run away. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous. And that's a comfort to us. The the idea of verse 12, the eyes of the Lord over the righteous is this he knows and he hears all the provocations you're subjected to all the insults that may be directed to you all the discrimination against you because you're a believing Christian he knows these things that should be a comfort to you he will strengthen you if you call upon him he will avenge you in due course in his way for the eyes of the Lord over the righteous he sees what happens to you he takes account of it he blesses and strengthens you and dear friends he takes delight in your response he's watching all the time he hears your words The eyes of the Lord are over the righteous 
and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. They're the people who are insulting you or operating against you or unkind to you. And verse 13, this is a general truth. And who is he that will harm you if ye be followers of that which is good? You can defuse a lot of hostility by graciousness. Who is the person who will continue to be unreasonable toward you if you follow that which is good? If you're kind to them and good to them and you don't respond in kind, most people, it's a general observation, most people will mellow. Says the scripture, a soft answer turneth away wrath. And that's what we'll aim at so far as possible. Who is he that will harm you? Some will go on, yes, in their hostility. But by and large, if you respond well, it will be rewarded by a reasonable attitude. But verse 14, but and if you suffer for righteousness' sake, if they're not reasonable, and pe people within the family or wherever continue to be against you, because you respond meekly, and you do good, well then, uh, be not afraid, be happy. This is the Sermon on the Mount repeated. This is Christ's own blessing upon those who behave rightly under duress, under, under the load of hostility and problem. But an if you suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye. God is with you. He will help you. He will ultimately reward you. He will deal with this. And this applies right across the board. Your parent, have you got a difficult child going through a very difficult phase and you've got to somehow, by the grace of God, hold out in great patience and be a friend to that child as much as opportunity affords and not react badly and be firm at times, yet always that firmness suffused with kindness and friendship. Is that your situation? And you get insulted and unreasonable things are done. But and if you suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye, because the Lord sees and knows and will bless and strengthen you, and may answer your prayers sooner than you think, and that phase may pass, and there may be rich rewards, spiritually and personally, to be reaped. But verse 15, we won't go into that. We're looking at all these passages which speak about uh, response and attitude and meekness, and I began by speaking about Christian manhood. This is where strength lies. You need more strength to achieve meekness, that is a servant spirit, and gentleness and kindness in the Christian life 
Strength is to stand fast on matters of principle, but in all other respects to be as kindly and reflecting the kindness and love of God as we possibly can. That's the challenge, and that's where real strength is seen, not in this uh, aggressive, dogmatic, parade ground behaviour which is being promoted at the present time in many circles as contrary to scripture and it's a tragedy. We read these passages to be challenged by them and shaped by them. May God bless us and be with us in the coming days in these matters. Let's close by singing the hymn 450. Hymn number 450. Oh, for a heart to praise my God, a heart from sin set free.